Prati Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer, journalist and poet and I like to find out about what other people are doing, especially if they manage to blend together skills in unusual ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find interesting and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you just might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Gabby Flurry, a conservation biologist who is also a cancer survivor and a video game designer. I'm a conservation biologist by training and I work on something called human-wildlife interactions. So basically how humans interact with wildlife and that intersection there, which is sometimes positive, sometimes neutral and sometimes negative. And I focus a little bit more on the negative side on something called human-wildlife conflict. And there's some controversy about whether we should be calling it conflict at all. But basically how humans and animals kind of need to work better together um, because there may be conflicting goals. So an example of that would be elephants eating crops or carnivores eating livestock. And I focus kind of more on the carnivore side in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically within Southern Africa at this point. So other fun things, I'm a board gamer, I'm a cosplayer, and I'm a professional writer as well. So I try to do a little bit of everything. There's like loads and loads of things to think about. This is basically where this has come from in terms of people are doing amazing things out there. You're clearly not just doing one thing, two things. You seem to be doing it all. How much, you know, brain space have you got left? Have you got any capacity to add on extra things or is it at full capacity right now with all these different interdisciplinary things that you talk about? That is a good question. Yeah, so I'm actually designing a video game with a friend to address fast fashion consumption. Um, so that's kind of my other side project. So I'd say there's a little bit of brain space left, but I tend to kind of relax by watching TV. When I get a chance, I am behind, but I am watching The Last of Us right now. And yeah, and hanging out with my kitten who may interrupt this interview. So hopefully not, but possibly. We love, we love a kitten. Sometimes I have like, you know, family members decide it's okay. We'll just, we'll just get involved. And I'm like, that's fine. But I came across you because I was on Twitter and it came up with this thing called black mammologists. What is a mammologist? Is this to do with boobs? I keep thinking it's to do with boobs, but it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something actually quite serious. But also, what is it? Because it sounds super, super cool. But I don't. I think a lot of people would be asking, what is this? In fact, I asked some children that I know. I said, do you know what one is? And they were like, no, you need to ask that. So here's your chance to educate. Yeah, so it's the study of mammals. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, <laughs> which, you know, lactate. So that's actually pretty close. Um, <laughs> So I never really thought of myself as a mammologist until I got involved in uh, in that group and in that kind of campaign, because we all come from very different backgrounds. Like I come from a very interdisciplinary background. Some people are kind of more like pure zoology backgrounds. Some people actually came through calling themselves mammologists. So it's interesting that we kind of all found ourselves under this umbrella, but it's just people who study mammals, essentially. And I mean, you say you've got a kitten, but having like did a little bit of reading, cheetahs, cheetahs came up quite prominently in relation to you. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess my key thing is, how do you go from perhaps, you know, growing up, you know, domestic pets, maybe kittens to to getting like proper full on hardcore into figuring out what's our relationship with these sometimes scary creatures that are out there when you're in the field, right? You have to be respectful. I guess I'd term them. I wouldn't really think of them as scary, just respectful, right? They're They're powerful animals, right? So I think that it's kind of a hard question to answer because I've wanted to be in this field since I was three. So anytime everyone asks the question of like, why do you want to be a conservation biologist? I'm like, before I had conscious thought, you know, it's like, so um, yeah, I think a lot of it is I'm a cancer survivor. So I had osteosarcoma when I was a kid 
And I loved African wild dogs and cheetahs specifically because they could run really fast. So it kind of started this really instant like fascination of like, these are some really cool, fast, you know, animals. And then when I got older, I realized, you know, apart from habitat destruction, which we're all trying to you know, address, human wildlife conflict is the second biggest impact on carnivore populations. So that's kind of where I got interested in that. And because I'm naturally kind of a very interdisciplinary person, kind of like I mentioned, it's a very interdisciplinary field, right? You have, you know, animal behavior, you have political ecology, you have anthropology, you have cultural things, and all these things kind of tie together to be able to work on mitigating this problem. So it's one of those things where not only would I be able to do some good, you know, about the wildlife that I care about, hopefully also reduce losses to farmers as well, which I also care about, um, as well as being able to, from an intellectual perspective, you know, constantly be engaged because there's always something to learn. It's a very difficult problem. It's one of these, what we call wicked problems. So problems that are incredibly difficult to solve. And I always like trying to solve the hardest problems. So <laughs> I think that's why I'm in this field. But that's the thing, like you're talking about sort of solving hard problems, you know, we're going to go back to the gaming in, in, in a bit as well. But you're like, I want to do this since I was three. I mean, I, I wanted to be a journalist since I was like eight, but three, I was probably like still thinking about biscuits. I'm always thinking about biscuits. But how then do you go, actually, this is how I'm, to have that, to have gone through what you've gone through and then still have that drive to get to where you are now, bearing in mind that I'm sure you no disrespect intended here. It's probably not the most well-paid profession either. Like, no. <laughs> how do you just sort of make sure that you sort of stay on that path and your your thoughts, you know, have you been thinking about this? You keep heading towards this, which has a lot of impact, actually, what you're doing. Coming out of osteosarcoma, I think it was hard. But one of the things that did give me was a sense that life is very limited and you don't know what will happen in the future. So that gave me a sense of mission. So I knew I cared about these species. I knew I cared about the people it affected. And I think it was kind of like, you only have one life and you got to go for it um, because I, the last thing I wanted was regret. And to be fair, I mean, like, I didn't know if the cancer would return or anything like that. So it was one of those things where I just kind of was like, this is what I want to do. And I'm willing to do, you know, whatever it takes, within, obviously within reason, um, to pursue this goal um, and to keep working on it. So that kind of kept me on a pretty single path. Why carnival? But Why not like a tortoise like something a little bit you know, with less teeth like to be honest they're cool um so when you're a little kid like they are really cool animals I think everyone kind of is attracted to carnivores just because they're very interesting and they're beautiful a lot of the time or fascinating but as I got older you know they're the linchpins of ecosystems carnivore goes down they affect herbivores which affects the plant life which affects the ecosystem so if you take a carnivore out of the environment they have a disproportionate impact on everything that happens. It's what we call a trophic cascade. That's one of the things that really interests me because I'm like, this is a way that I can have an outsized impact by protecting those species that have trickle down effects if they're removed. So it's both kind of like, they're awesome and I'm really interested in these species in particular, but also I can protect the grass and <laughs> the antelopes and everything else that gets affected when a carnivore is removed. But what's also really interesting is that people talk about conservation now, they talk about climate change, you know, Nature is now no longer at a distance, like, you know, even if you're in urban areas, if wherever you are. But you've been on that path since you were a kid, as you were. When you talk about the creatures that you're talking about, you, you know, it's, it's actually just reminding me of watching one, you know, one of the BBC shows where they had, I have a feeling it's leopards, but I could be talking rubbish here. It was it leopards in Mumbai, where they're sort of wandering around and, you know, they've sort of, cut, cut, they've got the footage of them. But you don't necessarily realise that they're there. They are living 
in these urban areas alongside people and that's the sort of yeah. thing if i'm right in thinking that you're also looking at it's not just like oh let's look at wildlife you know human wildlife conflict far far away from like urban populations no actually this is something that is infiltrating a lot of different spaces that anybody could end up falling into yeah and it's interesting because like we think of human wildlife conflict as like i mentioned elephants or leopards or something you know exotic maybe but for example deer eating people's gardens rabbits eating people's gardens would be considered human wildlife conflict it's something that we deal with every day like you know maybe you know an animal runs across the road and you have to swerve to miss it that's human wildlife conflict so i think that it's kind of like a broader field than people understand it's basically just how do human and wildlife interact that have potentially negative consequences for one or either party um, so the work I kind of call myself doing is like, I like to call myself an interspecies diplomat. It's like, how do you find like the best middle ground um, between these, you know, these different parties? Um, and the complicated part of my work is coming in as an outsider and trying to make sure that I'm, I know my place as a scientist in terms of like, I consider myself a specialist in the science, but in terms of the cultural aspects, I will never know as much as the people who live there. So knowing, you know, let them take the lead and know kind of where my abilities can be best used. So there's also kind of a sense of humility that I think you have to have in this work and knowing that you don't have know it all and that you aren't an expert in that particular system in the way that the people who are from there are and being able to work within kind of those cultural boundaries is really important. From what you're saying, that's been quite sort of central to the way that you process and the way that you sort of move forward. I guess at what point did you realize that that has to be one of your top criteria? Because as I said, not everyone does that. It's just like, okay, I'm here. I've done my studies. I know this. I know that this is the way to do it. But that's not how it should be, right? No, because when you think about just sustainability, right, it's they're the people who live there. Like I might do a study and I hope to be engaged in those communities for the rest of my career, but I don't live there. It's not, they're not my wildlife. Does that make sense? So I think like I kind of address it from that where it's like I'm fascinated by it. I want to help and I've delivered my life to it, but I don't know what they know in terms of how that system works. And I think I came to it pretty early in my career, luckily, um, before I actually started doing a lot of field work, because when I was at my undergraduate degree, which is in James Madison University in Virginia, there was actually a sizable Maasai population, um, which was really interesting. So the Maasai are people um, who live in southern Kenya and uh, northern Tanzania. And a lot of the time, like, you know, they, they're they livestock owners. Um, they have cattle, and cattle are really important to the culture. And there was a Maasai guy who was doing a master's degree in uh, my university, in my program, and he was associated with my uh, undergraduate thesis advisor. So I got to talk to him. And I think that was the moment where kind of, like, the real light bulb came on of, like, oh, wow, people really are affected by this because it wasn't just the sense of like oh I could lose my livestock it's oh losing my livestock has cultural connotations that affect my standing in the community oh my kids might get attacked when they're walking you know when they're hurting my animals or I have to live in fear of you know elephants that could hurt me or my family and kind of like the the other costs the opportunity costs of that right um, and the stress and he was able to kind of explain to me kind of scientist to scientist like what he's seen people in his community go through and then connect me to other people in the community within this little Virginia town, <laughs> which was fascinating, without even stepping foot in Kenya yet. So I think that was a point where I was just like, wow, like I really need to listen and learn and slow down and not just rely on what I'm reading. I love that. Yeah. You did something about like lights, like lights flashing 
ages ago, I did a story for World Service and came across Lion Lights, came across the, the Maasai boy who created Lion Lights. And we went back to find yeah. out what happened to him because we were interested in, in these stories of innovation. And it's like, hold on, people are coming up with ideas, but then what happens? What happens next? In his case, he got a bit screwed over trying to do a patent. So it's it's a little bit weird how this is all very sort of circular in terms of like, yes, I know what you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's making me think. You are so super cool. It's too much. I can't deal with it. But in terms of being able to deal with it, can, can we talk about the games? Like, have you not made video games? Am I making this up? Yeah, video games. It's something I'm working on right now with a, with a colleague and something I've done in the past. I enjoy I enjoy gaming. I think interactive education is is the future in trying to, you know, share information and also get people engaged. And it was interesting because so my mom is an opera director, like she used to direct operas. So I came from kind of a theatrical background. My dad's a, a gemologist, so I came from kind of science and art. Um, right. But it was really cool because it's coming from that theatrical background, I would see how helpful skits were in outreach. So how she would, so she, we lived in Alaska for my middle school years and we would go, um, she did outreach into Inuit communities to do opera outreach. So we'd fly in in these little planes and I'd go in the middle school and she would do opera outreach and be like, hey kids, this is what opera is. And they could, they would sometimes share kind of like their cultural and their musical traditions as well, which is really cool. But there is a point to this. But basically um, what was really cool is that I would see that when they were engaging, when they would do skits and when they would kind of like bring people in, that's kind of when the light bulbs went on. And these kids that were just sitting there kind of crossing their arms like, oh, this is so silly. Like, why are we being made to do this? Would suddenly get into it. And I was thinking back about, okay, how do we get people interested in environmental education? And it's like, we just, we can't just talk to them. Like we can't just wrote, say the information. Um, or have them regurgitate it, we need to get them engaged. And some, one of the best ways to do that is through interactive play. So that's kind of how I got into that side field. This is so amazing. I feel literally like, oh my gosh, this is all very, very interconnected in this way. Like, how do you relax? How do you like, are, are your neurons constantly popping to each other? Like, honestly, what is going on? <laughs> uh, I don't do a lot of relaxing, I'll be honest. I honestly find working on projects kind of relaxing. I know that's like the workaholic thing to say, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> But yeah, I think um, I'm very lucky that I get to pursue a lot of really interesting work. But then also, how do you sustain yourself? So say somebody's like, oh, this sounds super cool. Yeah. I want to get into it. As I say, this is not necessarily the most well-paid field that I'm in. <laughs> we'll be poor together. But no, how are you sort of able to cope and be like, okay, I'm committed to this. This is important. Is it things like grants? Is it things like having to do some side hustles? How does it actually work in real life? Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. So in my field, it does tend to be people from higher socioeconomic strata to be able to deal with some of the things. And it does tend to be people who are not people of color. So that is pretty isolating as well. Going into the field, I kind of knew I was initially at a disadvantage because I couldn't pay to do six weeks in Borneo, you know, just like doing field work. Because um, there's a lot of pay to play opportunities out there where you can get field work, but you'd have to pay for it or they wouldn't pay you. And then new unpaid internships. Um, where I didn't get anything would be difficult. I also knew I couldn't pay to do anything. Um, and there's also the years of education and there's huge barriers to conservation. So first barrier is you have to be lucky enough to even know what conservation is, to even know that's a field you can do. And then at that point, you know, say someone's interested in conservation, you have to get through at least a master's degree, which has to either come with funding or you have to come up with funding yourself. So this was a mix of good luck and I think working really hard. So I was engaged at the right time in my undergraduate career by the right person who kind of led me in a path kind of towards what I'm doing now um, in terms of like formalizing it. 
but also I had a full ride for my master's because I had a Rotary grant. Um, they usually fund political scientists, but I made the case that human welfare is inexorably tied to wildlife and human wildlife conflict would fall under their purview. So by being able to do that, I was able to get a global grant that funded my master's degree, but hilariously only funded one year. So I had to find an accelerated master's degree. So I did my master's degree in 14 months in Cape Town, South Africa and got it fully paid for. Luckily, once you have a PhD or you get into a PhD program, they're usually fully funded. You don't get paid much. And yeah, for equipment and stuff, it's, it's all grants. So you become a really good grant writer you get really good at being able to sell your work um, and being able to express, you know, the importance of what you're doing um, so you can, you know, buy camera traps and things like that. So I would say that, and I say this to a lot of people who are interested in getting into conservation, if it's something that really drives you, if it's something that you like, you can't imagine doing anything else, this is what you want to do, do it, but know it's hard and it has to be worth it for you. It's not something to do on the lark because you think it sounds cool. It's something that you need to be able to protect your mental health and protect your time and protect, you know, your relationships, because if you let it, it will eat everything in your life because <laughs> it just it's all consuming. Right. And you kind of have to be very focused to be successful because it is so competitive. It's like trying to be an astronaut, like you need to be able to have boundaries. Um, and I think being able for me, carving out time for my relationships is important carving out time to do just fun things. Like I say, I cosplay, nothing to do with anything I do, but you have to protect that time. So I'd say that it is possible and to go for it if it's someone's dream, but it's not just kind of like, oh, I think I'll study animals. And you know, it's, But I always say that like, if, if someone wants to do it, they can find a way to do it. You just have to be creative and not just kind of sit and wait around for opportunities. So I always see like when, you know, the whole thing, like when a, when a door closes, like a window will open. It's like, forget that you know, build a better door. Like, don't just wait for a window to open, like build your own because, you know, the world's not going to wait for you. I love that. I think, yes, building a better door. That Why don't you get in, like, i tell you where you can make some extra money with your hustle, get down a t-shirt, sell it. But it's also really weird. You've just mentioned Rotary. So I didn't know this before, but I have a Rotary Peace Fellowship and it's because I got a mid-career professional development fellowship funded by Rotary. So I'm like, fair That's enough. Awesome. But it's also there because we were doing peace. And I started understanding more about sort of peace and conflict and people that were in the field. That's what triggered my interest in the human wildlife, like environmental stuff. I was like, why are we not talking more about the environment? Like what's going on here? That's so weird. Like all these little interconnections that are happening. Is there anything yeah, no else that I should be thinking about that you should be thinking about? Should we be thinking more or thinking less? <laughs> yeah, I think a big thing in conservation up and coming is the importance of collaboration and the importance of reducing egocentricity and focusing on the problems. And I think that's in a lot of fields. So that's just something that I try to think about is that as I'm building my own career, you know, how can I lend my skills to multidisciplinary projects? How can I make connections with people who do other things? So for example, this video game idea that I did, it was a human wildlife conflict video game. We designed three mini games around human wildlife conflict. And it was literally me and a software engineer friend who did it for free. And we did it over a year and we did it in PowerPoint and free Unity game engine because we were poor. We did that. And then in, in terms of beta testing it, we literally dry emailed somebody I really respected and said, would you test this in your environmental education program in Mozambique? And luckily she said yes. And that helped us refine the game. And then we were able to publish a paper off it. So like, it's one of those things where, you know, we kind of came from nothing and we were just like, this would be cool. And let's 
spend a couple hours a week doing it. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did because the entire thing had to have no text. We couldn't have any text because of, you know, language barriers. You walk down the street in Africa, you hit like 15 different languages. And, you know, we didn't want there to be any literacy barriers or anything like that or to be any complications. So we had to explain like what a trophic cascade is, the thing we just talked about in like PowerPoint art. <laughs> which took like six months of our lives just like literally we would do like this little video where it was all powerpoint art and we would give it to our beta tester and she would be like okay people got tripped up here so we'd have to take it back and be like okay okay how do we explain it better until literally and we did it until like the entire 42 people not a single person was confused that's brilliant. Six months. on one hand it's like no lingual but on the other hand it's multilingual because of the fact that it's it's, it's able to sort of be translated that way i love it i absolutely love it Again, years and years and years ago, I worked on a project where it's called What Does Freedom Look Like? And then we had to create a cool. comic, but it had to be wordless because it had to go across all these language services. So we were very lucky in that I was able to go and get um, a guy called Grant Morrison, who was mm -hmm. behind, a, yeah, behind a lot of sort of superheroes. You know, Mandem, he knows his stuff far more than I know it, but he was able to do it. And it was like, this is absolutely brilliant. But it's, it's, it's hard to be able to communicate something that you maybe, you know, talk about all the time, understand quite well, but need to make sure that people understand it if they have never even come across the concept before. And also understanding that other people, they might not know exactly what you're doing, but they have their own valuable skill sets. So I think something as scientists we need to avoid is being so caught up in thinking that we know best and acknowledging that there's other equally important skill sets that we don't have. And that's why collaboration is so important. So like, for example, like traditional ecological knowledge. There's so much knowledge in communities that are essential for solving these problems. They're not helplessly waiting for us to fix things. You know, we're coming in from a different angle. So I think reframing it instead of it, you know, we're parachuting down and we're saving the world. And, you know, it's like we're not. We are part of a bigger team of people already working on these things in their own countries. We're the specialists. We're not running the show. The wonderful Gabby Flurry, who puts together video game designing, conservation biology and more and makes it work. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? I'd love to hear from you and maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? and can be found via www.drutyshah.com. Thank you to Rian Shah for the music for this podcast.